Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. When your grandmother gets raped, put it on the front page. That was the Medill family editorial policy, and Eleanor Medill Patterson, known to everyone as Sissy, embraced it enthusiastically. As the editor of the Washington Times, she pioneered the 24-hour news cycle, printing 10 editions of the paper per day. Throughout D.C., the Times-Herald was famous as, quote, the damnedest newspaper to ever hit the streets. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Amanda Smith about her latest book, Newspaper Titan, The Infamous Life and Monumental Times of Sissy Patterson. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography today. I wonder if you could just kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born in New York City, and um, I went to school in New York um, for the most part to a girls' school called Spence from um, first grade until I was in high school. And then I went to a boarding school in England called Charterhouse and um, came back and went to college in the States at Harvard, where I majored in um, not exactly a dual major, but a department all of its own. Uh, called History and Literature, which um, has been around for a while, and the premise being that you can't really understand the history of a nation without understanding its literature and vice versa. And then um, I went back to grad school at Harvard. Um, I, having been in History and Literature, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do a PhD in History or in Literature, and I ended up choosing the English department at Harvard. And um, I started out as a Victorianist uh, in the PhD program, but ended up um, figuring it was probably going to be easier to get a job as an Americanist. And um, while I was working, I was all but dissertation. And um, during my summers uh, in grad school, because I knew a little bit about rare document uh, conservation, my mom had mentioned to me that her father, Joe Kennedy, Senior's papers were, um, some of them were at the JFK Library, but they hadn't yet been deeded to the National Archives. And the rest, as far as my mom knew, were um, sort of scattered around at the attic in Hyannisport and uh, um, the family office in New York City, or at least their office storage. So I started going through the stuff during my summers in grad school and um, found it really interesting. And um, just by happenstance, when I had finished my PhD orals, I happened to sit next to a literary agent at a dinner party. And um, I wasn't, I didn't even know enough to think of a song or a book or anything, but um, we started talking about uh, doing the preservation work. And she asked me if I would send her some uh, examples of uh, Joe Kennedy letters, which included a lot of letters back and forth from his kids and from people like Churchill and Roosevelt. And um, it was a really interesting collection for a lot of reasons, but in part because it had never been opened before and because insofar as any historians like Doris Kearns Goodwin or Arthur Schlesinger had seen it, um, they hadn't seen the whole shebang, all the stuff that had come from the attic in Hyannis or from the office in New York and stuff. So I sent her some of the material, and she eventually sold it as a book. And so rather than um, finish my dissertation, which was going to be about the Massachusetts abolitionist senator, Charles Sumner, he was the one, you might remember, who was um, beaten, on the, literally beaten senseless on the floor of the Senate in 1856. Uh, he was a really ferocious uh, abolitionist. And um, anyway, he, I ended up not... Uh, doing my dissertation, but instead doing an edition of um, the letters of Joe Kennedy called Hostage to Fortune. And I find that in my case, I always feel like my projects find me rather than the other way around. And it was through those letters that I found out about Sissy Patterson, um, who kept coming up. And I mean, she was, uh, you know, in the 30s and 40s, 
a well-known figure in the United States and particularly in Washington where my <clears throat> grandfather um, was living and working for on and off throughout the 30s um, in the Roosevelt administration. And then um, after my mom's family, family came back from London um, where their dad had been stationed as ambassador between 1938 and 1940, um, my mother's, one of my mother's elder sisters came back and um, got a job at the Washington Times-Herald Sissy's newspaper. And so I became really interested in American isolationism between the two world wars. Um, the isolationists were really a colorful bunch like uh, Lindbergh or like my grandfather or William Randolph Hearst or Colonel McCormick, but of a very colorful, um, very um, a big bunch of characters, let's say. Um, Susie Patterson was the most outlandish. And <clears throat> so when I was looking for a new project to do, I just felt like from, she was sort of beckoning to me from a variety of quarters. And um, I had heard about her first uh, as a, you know, like a zany lady newspaper publisher in D.C. where I live now. Um, and uh, she, she, you know, hadn't really been remembered beyond that. But when I started scratching the surface, I found that she wasn't just any old lady publisher. She actually ran what was by far at the time the most widely circulated daily and um, the most profitable paper in D.C., and um, anyway, so that's how I got into this project. But the rest of my own story is that um, right after I finished the first book, um, Hostage to Fortune, The Letters of Joe Kennedy, I, um, my now husband and I got engaged and I moved to D.C. and we had two kids. And um, I'd been thinking about writing the Sissy book for a while, but uh, people always ask me how long it took me to put it together. and. Um, I always think back and time it by the birth of my my younger child, my son, who's going to be seven in March, and uh, I, you know, I sent in the um, proposal, and my agent called me back and said that Knopf was interested in it, but could I do it in two years? And I said, well, my husband and I are thinking of having a second child in the meantime, so I'm not sure I could do it in two years, actually. And um, so we, you know, we negotiated the time schedule and stuff. And I think we sold it on a Monday and on Friday I found out I was pregnant with my son. So I always think, you know, he and, and the sissy book are just about the same age in a way. And um, so, yeah, it took, once I had kids, I wasn't quite as efficient as I used to be, but um, it was a really fascinating process and um, one that I'm really glad that I did. The thing that really struck me about Newspaper Titan is that it's a very, it's a really smooth and enjoyable read, and yet it's also this the sprawling story that incorporates a massive amount of research. Uh, you have nearly a hundred pages of endnotes, and can you talk a bit about the sources that you uncovered as you were going along? Well, I always find that you know, in as much as the, I feel like the project always finds me, but um, that the sources are almost like one of the things I love most about doing historical research is that in a lot of ways, it's like assembling some sort of mosaic. And, um, you know, you don't know the whole story until you have all of, or at least I never feel like I can write unless I have all of my ducks in a row and all of the documents that I'm likely to find for the most part. You know, every so often something else will, you know, come out of the blue. But um, so I like to collect everything first and then put it into chronological order and then read it all over in chronological order you don't always find it in chronological order. And then once you read it um, in the order in which it was written, it makes so much more sense. And you see all sorts of insights and parallels and um, you see the unfolding of events in a way that you couldn't otherwise. And so some of the sources that I started out by, you know, as anybody would, um, trying to contact any members of Sissy's family who were still alive. And at the time, her granddaughter, Ellen, was still alive and living in San Diego. And <clears throat> Ellen was a really interesting character. Um, and, you know, it's hard to tell when you meet somebody like that if you're projecting, let's say, in, in her case, grandfather, I mean, her grandmother's character onto her, um, you know, very quixotic 
um, very charming and sometimes very malevolent figure onto, you know, poor and suspecting Ellen. Um, but I think they did have certain uh, characteristics in common. They were both very intelligent, very witty. Um, sometimes Ellen could be pretty tart. And um, I spent a fair amount of time with her. And one thing that was very poignant to me was that uh, I was pregnant with my son, as I was saying, when I first um, started doing the research, when I first went out to visit Ellen in San Diego. And she would have been in her 80s then. And uh, But it was also the first time that I ever left my daughter, my elder child, who at the time was three. And um, over the course of doing research, I found um, the memoirs that uh, Sissy's daughter, uh, Felicia, left. And Felicia was a child of, you know, great privilege um, and great wealth, but somebody who, for all the luxury in their life, or early life at least, um, had a very difficult childhood. I mean, I can't think of many other examples that were quite that dramatic. Her, She was the child who, you know, just for the sake of the reader, was... Um, basically kidnapped by her father after her parents' marriage fell apart in a really violent way. And uh, she was held for a year and a half. Um, it's not even entirely clear where she was exactly. Um, but she left... Anyway, the, the Tsar of Russia, Nicholas II, and President Taft had to intervene to retrieve her. And uh, she finally came home. And even though Sissy had tried really hard to get her back, um, for whatever reason... I think in part because Sissy's own mother wasn't a very uh, hands-on caregiver, but Sissy didn't really wasn't a very maternal type and didn't really nurture Felicia once she got her home. And Felicia herself um, grew up to have a, a very interesting life, um, but a difficult one. And her memoir um, that she wrote at the end of her life in her 80s, um, partly in rebuttal to an earlier biography of Sissy. Uh, was one that was really crucial to my research, but which um, was very poignant to me to read because she was a child who was kidnapped at the age of two and a half and was held basically until she was four. And in the meantime, in order for me to read this material and find out about Felicia, I had to leave my own little daughter at home. And, uh, you know, the two situations obviously weren't quite the same, <laughs> like a kidnapping and just, you know, leaving your child behind at home with her dad and, you know, with a babysitter and safe and going to school and everything isn't the same thing, but it was the first time I'd ever left her behind. And it made me think a lot about Felicia's childhood. Mm -hmm. um, so Felicia's um, papers were really crucial uh, and very poignant. And she ended up growing up to... Uh, be one of the first women to join uh, AA in the 1940s. And until I started doing research on this book, I didn't even know that AA went back that far. And so there were a lot of kind of sidelines that became really fascinating, like the history of AA and um, Felicia's uh, first marriage to a guy who ended up becoming a really famous political um, columnist called Drew Pearson, and um, Drew Pearson's early life was really fascinating, too. And all of this, you know, is intertwined with the history and growth of the tabloid in the United States and the growth of tabloid culture and um, the, the golden age of the newspaper. And um, I think probably the most amazing cache of documents that I found was um, the part about uh, Felicia's kidnapping. And the, basically... Um, I couldn't figure out what had happened during the 18 months that she um, had been taken by her father from her mother. And um, all of the newspaper stories in the United States seemed to be kind of, well, mutually contradictory. I couldn't figure out, you know, how they'd gotten her back or what had happened or who exactly did what. Or, um, and the, the basic background is, I don't know if you want me to fill that in. Yeah, go ahead. But um, the basic background was that Sissy... Uh, married a Polish count called Józef Gizyszki in 1904 against her parents' wishes. And um, her father, in an effort to scare Gizyszki away, um, refused to give Sissy a dowry, which was the customary thing at the time. And Sissy, being uh, nothing if not fashionable, wanted to do the fashionable thing and marry 
a title. She was an American heiress. And um, so her early life really was like something out of Edith Wharton and Henry James. And I'm not convinced that Edith Wharton didn't in part base the character of um, Countess Ellen Olenska and Countess Eleanor Gajishka um, in uh, The Age of Innocence. But in any case, um, so Sissy got married and very quickly discovered that her husband was even more of a cad than she had been warned he would be, and left him after four years of marriage, um, still bleeding from the beating that he had dealt her that night. And she fled to uh, London, basically, where her father had been traveling on business with her then uh, two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Felicia. Um, Sissy started to blame herself for the rupture in the marriage um, pretty shortly after that and tried to make it up with the Count. Um, They met in Paris. He managed to sweet-talk her into giving up the little girl's address at the time. She was being hidden outside of London with um, her nanny. Um, And the Count, after beating up Sissy again and threatening to kill her, um, left, went to London, picked up the child, um, and had told Sissy that he would come back and they would, you know, all be a family again, but he never came back and basically held the little girl in an effort to squeeze more money out of Sissy's family because he'd never gotten the dowry to begin with. And um, so anyway, uh, finally, because Sissy's family was very well connected, her grandfather, Joseph Medill, was a, a very famous abolitionist and was one of the sort of founding fathers of the Republican Party before um, the Civil War. And um, so anyway, the family was able to uh, ask President Taft to intervene. And um, because some of her relatives had lived in Russia, her uncle was um, the American ambassador uh, in the early part of the, in the first years of the 20th century in St. Petersburg, they were able to get the czar, Nicholas II, to intervene to get the little girl back. And so I was trying to figure out exactly what did happen because the press accounts only show that um, Felicia was taken and there was a big custody battle. And then nearly two years later, she comes back, but it's not clear what happened in the meantime. So what I did was reading the press accounts, um, I found that there was a character called Baron Budberg in St. Petersburg, who was um, a member of the, you know, at the time, very quite extensive late Imperial Russian civil service. And um, he was in charge of something. Somehow he was said to have um, been of use to Sissy's family in getting the little girl back. But I wasn't sure if that was in a private capacity or whether, you know, he had done something official to help her. And none of the newspapers really clarified what, you know, what role he had played. So I started, you know, just on a trying to grasp at straws, I, I, tried to figure out who this Budberg fellow was. And it turned out that he was in charge of this um, sort of governmental body called um, the Chancellery for Receipt of Petitions. And when I started looking into what that was, it turned out it was um, this body which was instituted to um, enforce what was called the Tsar's Supreme Will. Um, Church, uh, religious law and um, the Orthodox Church at the time didn't permit couples to divorce, um, but the Tsar had the right to make individual decrees of divorce in cases where um, women or children might be in danger, where there was, you know, really irreconcilable um, differences between a couple or within a couple, and you know, if somebody was in danger, the Tsar could intervene to um, to dissolve a marriage. And so finally, it made sense to me that. Baron Bedberg would have had something to do with returning Felicia. So um, I started doing a little more research about the chancellery and found out that there's a fair amount of new um, American scholarly interest in uh, late imperial Russian legal matters, and particularly in this body, the chancellery. And, you know, through its papers, which have survived in large part, um, there have been all sorts of new examinations of late Russian imperial families. And um, and so anyway, there's a, a professor at Boulder who had written quite extensively about the chancellery and about some of their cases. So I got in touch with her and said, you know, explained what I was doing and, you know, said, I see that you quote from a lot of these cases. Is it possible that the case, the Gajishki 
case file would still exist. And she happened to have um, a list of all the documents from a particular archive containing the Chancellor's records that had been culled. All the doc- the um, the materials that had been culled for families whose name began with G. And she said, you know, your family's name isn't on that, which means that the, it well could still exist, but that archive is closed and, you know, won't be open for her indefinitely. We don't know when it'll open again. So um, I got sort of discouraged at that, but then I thought, well, I don't know. I'll see if I can figure out more about it. So I um, I looked up whether I could find maybe a research assistant or something in St. Petersburg to look into it because I don't speak Russian and... I, you know, like I said, I have two small kids, and I didn't think I'd be able to go to St. Petersburg myself. And it turns out that, lo and behold, there is an entire business that um, I guess people usually use for genealogical research in Russia, um, but that they have a special relationship with this particular archive that was closed and um, can actually get access to materials there. So they found the file, and... Um, once I got the file, once I, it was, um, you know, obviously in Russian partly, but it was also in German and English and French. And so once the German and Russian parts were translated, and again, once I put all the material back into chronological order, what had happened to Felicia was clear. Um, all of the ins and outs, all of the negotiations, how they fell through, how they were renewed again, the ultimate settlement, um, and the correspondence from all of the major figures, from Sissy, from Gizhishki, from Sissy's mother, from her father. Um, and all of a sudden, the whole thing became clear. And so sometimes they find it's, um, you know, I, like I said, I love the detective work of it. And sometimes if you just, you know, you're at the end of your rope and you can't figure out where the documents must be or whether they still exist, if you go out on a tangent and look into you know, whatever few facts you do know about a situation, sometimes they turn up a real treasure trove of material. And um, so that was the case with um, the Russian material about Felicia. And then, um, I mean, there were so many great archives, and it's it's such a, you know, you get so many windows onto people's lives. Like, I really enjoyed doing research in the Drew Pearson papers. He was um, Sissy's daughter, Felicia, the one who kidnapped her um, first husband, and he had a really um, meteoric career in his own right. He was basically the first sort of invented with a colleague the political gossip column and became, after Walter Winchell, by um, the 1930s and 40s, he was the second most highly paid after Winchell um, columnist in the United States. He had a radio show. He was... um, you know, really well-known, really influential. And um, to see the, you know, read his papers and um, see the development of his own career um, was also a really interesting um, lens to through which to see the growth of the, the tabloid and the growth of the syndicated column and the, the effects on national public opinion and the way that um, columns like that played out in elections or in changing American public opinion about intervention into the Second World War it was really fascinating. And um, so I think that doing the research is, you know, probably one of my favorite parts of, of doing a book like this. So fascinating. Um, I wonder if you could, you mentioned Sissy's malevolence. If you could just talk about that's a very important word, I think, in the book. Um, if you could just talk a bit about her personality, not necessarily her family connections, which we'll get to in a second, but just who she was herself on her own. Well, Sissy was somebody who um, I've always thought was really highly intelligent and who didn't really have an outlet for all of her abilities for much of her life. Um, I also suspect, although it's a pet peeve of mine when um, writers or historians make, you know, what are in effect psychiatric or medical diagnoses because we're not qualified to do that. And even if we were, it would be pretty cheap to, you know, make a psychiatric diagnosis of somebody we've never met and will never meet. But um, there's anecdotal evidence within Sissy's family to suggest that they, um, you know, were if nothing else, uh, given to instability and to alcoholism. And a granddaughter 
as one of Sissy's cousins um, has suggested in her own scholarly work that there was a certain degree of um, bipolar disorder in the family. And whether that applied to Sissy or not, I'm not sure, but I think it's pretty clear that she um, had a propensity for alcoholism and that um, later in her life, there's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that um, she was using um, uh, intravenous stimulants, probably cocaine, um, that she received from a, a sort of white Russian immigre quack doctor who was practicing in the um, in Washington at the time. So I think she was she was very brilliant. She was at times, as you said, really malevolent. And the the form that that would take was she was. Um, I don't know. I, I love the fact that she was often described by contemporaries as being very feline. She was apparently memorably graceful, and I'm not really sure what that means, but anyway, that's what everybody said about her. She was like a panther or something like that. Um, she moved, you know, like water, essentially. Um, she was also like a cat and being, uh, you know, very, she took good care of herself. Um, she was always beautifully dressed, beautifully um, done up. And she was also a very catty woman. Um, and the thing on top of it was that she always struck me as somebody who almost had nine lives. Um, you know, she was an heiress when she was young. She was a countess. She was um, splashed through the um, international headlines as a notorious divorcee who was part of an, a notorious international custody battle. Then she came home and she was... Um, an actress for a while. She was a novelist, but the thing she really wanted to do was get into the family business. Um, and her family owned or the majority stake in the Chicago Tribune. And she didn't really have any way of writing for the Tribune or participating in the management of it. And so she began writing uh, stories here and there for, for the most part for the Hearst press and Hearst was pretty much her own family's uh, sworn enemy. And um, Hearst, I think, in an effort as much to irritate her brother at the New York Daily News and her cousin, Colonel McCormick, at the Chicago Tribune, uh, hired her to edit his um, losing Washington, D.C. Herald in 1930. Um, and Sissy took it up both because she had, I think it's fair to say, she had whatever strange um, genius or alchemy or ability one needs to uh, run and maintain and improve um, a tabloid newspaper. Um, but also, um, I think Hearst, you know, gave her the chance to um, to use her talents and to, you know, indulge this desire she'd had for a long time to go into newspapers. But also, I think he knew that he always knew the value of a publicity stunt and having a woman edit. Um, a, a daily newspaper was, um, you know, at the time there weren't any women doing it and there hadn't been for so long, um, basically since the late 19th century, that a lot of accounts about um, Sissy's becoming editor of the Herald described her as the first in American history. She wasn't, but she was the first to have any long tenure over, um, you know, say a few years. And um, for whatever reason, she had no particular education at all, and she certainly had very little journalistic experience, but for whatever reason, she was able to make a go of the Washington Herald, and she made it the leader in the Washington morning market within three years. Um, by the end of the decade, she bought not only the Herald from Hearst, who was by then going bankrupt, but his evening paper in D.C., The Times. She combined them um, at personal expense, and she was also, I should say, the only person in the United States to actually own outright um, a major metropolitan daily newspaper. She just bought the paper herself. Um, but she, her combined paper, the Washington Times Herald, um, was the most widely circulated by far um, throughout the uh, 1940s, uh, despite it being very ferociously anti-Roosevelt and um, anti-war, even after the United States got into the war. Um, and I have to say, like, whatever strange magic she had, it's when you read the Times Herald now, there's um, the only complete set that I know of is, of uh, microfilms is down at the MLK Library in D.C. And I used to really enjoy going down there every day to read 
the Times Herald because it is really fun. It's really malevolent. It's really gossipy. And you can't believe that she was able to put some of this down on paper. And it's true. Like when you actually look at the um, legal records um, in D.C. at the National Archives of Newspapers in the mid-century, um, her Times Herald and before that her Herald and her Times were um, more often sued for libel than any other publications in D.C. And when you look at libel law now, there's still cases that um, come up and that service case law that, you know, derive from Sissy's tenure at um, the Times or the Herald or the Times Herald. And she would often pay libel judgments out of her own pocket, which basically gave her free reign to say whatever she wanted about anybody. And that's what she did. She reserved for herself a front page box whenever she felt like it uh, in her newspaper. And as often as not, she would use it to <laughs> make an ad hominem attack on somebody. Um, she began by doing that against her old frenemy, um, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, um, who was a sort of girlhood friend of hers, um, but somebody who I suspect she was uh, both in, in awe of and uh, a little bit jealous of. And um, anyway, so Sissy attacked her as one of her first acts as um, editor of the Herald in 1930. And um, the effect of it was to make the paper sales of the paper um, jumped really dramatically. And so Sissy was sort of emboldened by that and went on in that vein. And I was actually at a uh, giving a talk yesterday and uh, somebody was covering it from New York Social Diary and she was saying to me like uh, you know I'm so interested in being here because Sissy was kind of the progenitor of the New York Social Diary type of journalism like the overlap between um, you know covering the overlap between gossip and parties and politics um, which is you know very much what goes on in D.C. and did at the time. I suppose it's gone on in D.C. since the, the city's inception. But Sissy really captured that and captured that nexus of, um, you know, gossip, politics, intrigue, policy, um, secrets, uh, strategic planning. Um, and she, I think that's kind of the genius of her paper is that it's fun to read. You can also tease out um, you know, secrets or hints that she gives about anything from people's sex lives to, um, you know, secret plans that she knows about that, um, you know, are going to be revealed, uh, secret military plans or secret political plans or, um, anyway, it's a fascinating newspaper to read. And some people have sort of pondered off as silly, but I think it's actually very sophisticated. And I think her, you know, I have to say, like, her brand of malice makes it <laughs> a fun read. And um, although D.C., you know, after the war, the entire, or after Pearl Harbor, the entire country really got behind the president and behind the war effort. But Sissy's paper, you know, remained very anti-Roosevelt, very hostile to the war effort. And even so, it, if anything, its sales rose. Um, and I think it's being such a fun kind of guilty pleasure is what accounts for that. And I think that, you know, any newspaper proprietor, particularly at the time, really um, put their mark on their own publication. And Colonel McCormick's Chicago Tribune was very much a, a kind of mouthpiece of McCormick and his way of thinking. Um, in New York, Joe Patterson's uh, Sissy's Brothers, New York Daily News, the first Bible tabloid in the United States, was very much. Um, a kind of embodiment of Joe Patterson himself. Um, and I think Sissy's Washington Times Herald was very much like Sissy. I mean, it was very tart, very funny, very fickle, very um, unreasonable at times, um, libelous, <laughs> mean-spirited, but also at times very charitable and did really great, important work. Like it started a, a drive to create a school lunch program that, eventually became federally funded and became, you know, one of the models for school lunches across the country. And all of that was Sissy's idea. Um, so she was a really contradictory person who, um, 
you know, I'm sure it was difficult to be friends with, and very few people who were able to remain friends with her. But um, I think her paper, if you could stand back and read her paper uh, and not get too close to her, you, you know, you, it was really fun. It was a really exciting read. Um, you mentioned the, the three papers of the family. One of the things that I thought was really interesting was once they, on the advent of World War One, World War Two, how they came out very strongly isolationist and kind of used all three papers in tandem together. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, well, um, Franklin Roosevelt and the many members of the administration and the press at the time um, began describing the family in the early 1940s as um, the Patterson-McCormick axis. Um, Henry Luce described them as um, the three theories of the isolationist press. And those descriptions weren't exaggerations. I mean, they were, they hounded Roosevelt, essentially. And it was all the more um, dramatic, I think, because uh, basically the Pattersons and their cousin, Colonel McCormick, had grown up with Franklin Roosevelt. Um, the two boys had, had gone to school with him at Groton. And Joe Patterson began his life as, um, although he, you know, he was a, a newspaper heir and um, went to a fancy New England boarding school and you know was, uh, lived in, in great um, comfort and luxury even, um, was actually a card-carrying socialist. And uh, throughout his life was famous for having a very genuine kind of common touch and a, a sort of fascination with the common man. I mean, there are stories of him growing up in Chicago and wandering down uh, alleyways to look at, um, you know, just how ordinary people live. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't patronizing. He wasn't condescending. Uh, he didn't go as a sort of anthropologist. He went because he really admired people who did hard work. And um, his paper really reflected that. So, um, you know, the New York Daily News was... Uh, very celebratory of, and, you know, very proletarian in its base. It was um, a copy, essentially, of, or it was closely modeled after um, Britain's Daily Mail. Uh, in the, you know, it was, um, the stories were made sort of much shorter, much punchier, much, um, you know, at the Daily News, um, the use of um, polysyllables was discouraged. Um, the paper was packed with, um, you know, the latest technology in terms of putting photographs into the paper, um, you know, bigger headlines, uh, punchier writing style, contest giveaways. And the other thing that Joe Patterson had a great love for and kind of genius for was the creation of comic strips. And um, he actually was the progenitor um, in the you know, developer, the the author, uh, the original author of a lot of comic strips that we remember even today, like Little Orphan Annie or Dick Tracy, um, Moon Mullins. Um, there are, you know, a number that would be less well-known now, but that were incredibly popular uh, in the mid-century and continued on after his death in 1946. Um, and the three, Sissy, Joe, and um, uh, Rob McCormick, uh, Colonel McCormick were sort of at odds, at least um, philosophically or politically, say, by the beginning of the 1930s. Um, Colonel McCormick, who reportedly had always hated Franklin Roosevelt at Groton, and vice versa, Roosevelt had always hated him. Well, McCormick was uh, consistently hostile to um, Roosevelt and to the administration and its aims and objectives. Joe Patterson. Uh, was, as usual, the opposite, at least uh, in at the beginning of the administration. Um, he made, or his Daily News at least, made a pledge that I'm not sure had any precedence and I don't think has ever been repeated, where the day after Roosevelt's inaugural in 1933, um, Joe Patterson's Daily News pledged not to make, given the, you know, the enormity of the... Um, the national, uh, uh, you know, the depression, essentially. Um, uh, he, Joe Patterson pledged not to criticize Roosevelt in print or the administration in print for a year. Um, 
because of the unusual difficulties that the administration faced. And um, at the end of that year, in 1934, the Daily News pledged to extend um, that sort of embargo on criticism for another year. And um, at one point, it was said that Roosevelt was prepared to offer Joe Patterson um, a cabinet post, which he wouldn't have taken. But they were, you know, not only unfriendly terms, they didn't just see eye to eye philosophically. I mean, Joe Patterson was a great admirer of the New Deal, especially the the socialistic aspects of it. Um, and, you know, the, the efforts to create jobs, to create, um, you know, infrastructure and, uh, you know, jobs for artists and... Um, Anyway, Roosevelt, he was very supportive of Roosevelt, um, but where intervention was concerned, that's where the, you know, he drew the line. And Sissy tended to follow her brother ideologically in most things. She wasn't an extreme socialist, but she was, um, you know, more to the left of the scale uh, early on in her life, and um, she was more skeptical of the Roosevelt administration, uh, especially by the Second New Deal. And um, Joe Patterson's experience when war finally came, Joe Patterson went to uh, Roosevelt's office, made an appointment to see him on December 11, 1941, and got into his World War I uniform. And he was a very highly regarded World War I soldier. Um, who, he was decorated. He had been gassed in the trenches. He was um, beloved by his men. Um, and he was, he was sort of legendary, actually, Captain Patterson. Um, and he went and he offered his services to Roosevelt, saying, you know, I disagreed with you about whether or not we should get into the war, but now that the that Japanese have attacked us, um, I want to lend all of my support to my country. And according to Joe Patterson's uh, account of the meeting, Roosevelt uh, was sitting at his desk when Joe Patterson came in, uh, Patterson saluted Roosevelt as the commander-in-chief. Roosevelt sort of glanced up at him and said, just a minute, and kept signing the documents that he was working on for, according to Joe Patterson, 15 minutes, uh, while Joe Patterson stood uh, at attention in front of his desk. Then finally Roosevelt looked up and, according to Joe Patterson again, only shook Patterson's hand because Patterson offered it, uh, and then sort of lit into Patterson saying, uh, you want to offer your services? Well, um, this is what you can do. You can go home and you can read all of the um, editorials that the Post published, uh, the New York Daily News published in the last year, and consider the damage to the uh, the cause, as he put it. Um, and that's what you can do for me. And um, Joe Patterson was so angry that he went. He was staying at Sissy's house in Washington at that point, and came home and said. Um, you know, that man lied to the American public. Uh, he was aiming to get us into that war uh, while claiming publicly that no boys were, no American boys were going to die abroad. And um, now all I want to do is outlive that bastard. And at that point, Sissy was always happy to <laughs> carry out a grudge. And um, she was so disgusted by the ill treatment her brother had received that. Um, she and her brother and Colonel McCormick at the Tribune began acting effectively in concert against the administration. And, you know, looking back, that seems sort of Lilliputian, but, um, you know, if you think of it, the Chicago Tribune had by far the widest circulation in the Midwest. The New York Daily News still holds records for circulation, um, had the widest Sunday circulation in the world, um, the largest daily circulation in the United States. And then Sissy's paper, the Washington Times-Herald, had by far the widest circulation in D.C., meaning that, you know, probably all of uh, the elected officials in Washington, all the diplomats, all the cabinet secretaries, um, all their staff, you know, all the diplomatic corps, the press corps, all read her paper. And so it had, you know, maybe a disproportionate reach, given how small a city Washington is. But in any case, those three papers together were um, had considerable influence. And there are letters actually from Roosevelt to Churchill complaining about uh, the Patterson-McCormick people, as he put it. And 
um, saying, you know, that he he could only pity Bertie and Sissy and Joe because they'd always been nuts. And um, but you, know, you can tell that Roosevelt always made such an effort to present an unruffled facade. But you know, I think that they really galled him. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think Sissy's cattiness and her love of holding a grudge really played out uh, during the war. And it, I think it was also played out because there was, you know, not only the the fact that uh, her family had known Franklin Roosevelt growing up, but there was also the issue of Drew Pearson, who her ex-son-in-law, um, who had by then become a very prominent political columnist and who was unabashedly pro-Roosevelt. Um, even though Roosevelt himself uh, often called Pearson a liar in, uh, at press conferences and things. Um, Pearson was a very staunch liberal, very supportive of the New Deal, um, and unwaveringly supportive of intervention into the Second World War. And um, there was Sissy had um, basically become estranged from her daughter, Felicia, the little girl who had been kidnapped by the mid-1930s. But strangely enough, although Felicia had divorced Drew Pearson, uh, Sissy was very close to him and to her granddaughter, Ellen, um, who lived for much of her life with Drew Pearson, and with Drew Pearson's second wife, um, Louvi Moore Abel Pearson. And um, when uh, Drew Pearson began writing uh, very pro-interventionist columns in the late 1930s and early 1940s, Sissy began cutting the column um, and putting it, as she herself put it um, further and further back in the in her in her newspaper towards the patent medicine ad, and um, so eventually Drew Pearson's um, agent um, gave notice that the uh, you know the Times Herald would no longer be publishing the Washington Merry Go Round uh, in D.C. And then, you know, all hell broke loose at that point, and Sissy was really vicious. And so her anti-war, um, anti-interventionist sentiment really played itself out personally and publicly. And in addition to attacking the war effort, she also attacked anybody who espoused it, um, Drew Pearson in particular, but also Franklin Roosevelt and the dealers, um, even, you know, young servicemen and women, which was obviously um, not only wrong-headed, but... Um, very unpopular, and um, she began receiving death threats, and a bomb was lobbed through the, the front door of the Times Herald building, and Sissy, who at this point had begun to see the white Russian immigrant doctor for shots of various sorts, became really erratic, and you can see it in the Times Herald as well, but, I mean, she made editorial decisions that I, I don't think had ever been seen before or since, um, you know, attacking Drew Pearson personally and making, uh, she put a picture of Drew Pearson next to a picture of Robespierre um, and, you know, sort of comparing what she described as liberal excesses in the French Revolution compared to the liberal excesses of the modern day, the New Deal, and, uh, you know, the, the interventionist set. And um, said really vicious things about him, which tended to boost his popularity um, and make her angrier and angrier. But... Um, you know, the the drama and the vituperation and the bile that she showed really um, displayed itself publicly um, in the Times-Herald. And I, I think that's another example of how much a reflection of her personality um, the paper was. That same cattiness kind of came out in her will, too, didn't it? Um, yeah, that was... She was somebody who, um, you know, had acted on her whims, and over the course of doing research, I found literally dozens of wills that she made and remade over the course of her adult life, and it was interesting to, you know, read them all in sequence and see, you know, basically you could chart who she was angry at and what, you know, effect that had in her, um, you know, her, her goodwill towards them in terms of, like, what she intended to leave to people. And the person who really suffered most from these changes was her granddaughter, Ellen, who, when Sissy made uh, what was believed to be her last will, uh, the one that was finally probated, Ellen was 16, 
and um, Felicia had lost custody of her because of uh, drinking. So Ellen was living with her dad and his second wife, living with Drew Pearson and his second wife in Georgetown. And um, when Ellen was a little girl, Sissy had been sort of extravagantly fond of her by, by all accounts. And for a 10th birthday present, she gave Ellen um, a 280-acre dairy farm uh, just north of D.C. in Potomac, Maryland. And Drew Pearson became the trustee for it and um, started a working dairy operation there and maintained it and put up structures and basically treated it like a country house and paid Ellen a sort of a rent, which Sissy later claimed was not the market rent and that um, Drew Pearson had been taking advantage of his daughter. Um, she brought suit, Sissy brought suit against Drew Pearson um, repeatedly in the early 1940s in the in a sort of ancillary effort to attack him while she was attacking him on the pages of her, her newspaper. Um, and although she claimed that she was bringing suit against Drew Pearson for mismanagement of the farm and of Alan's assets, um, <laughs> seeing that that wasn't her real motivation because um, Alan herself at the age of 16 was named as a co-defendant um, in Sissy's suit. And um, finally, uh, Sissy felt that Alan had chosen her father, Drew Pearson, over Sissy herself. And, you know, it was that's an unfair um, position to put any teenager in, especially when, you know, Alan wasn't, hadn't reached the age of majority yet and was living under her father's roof. Sissy seemed to expect her to choose Sissy. Um, and so Sissy wrote her a very venomous letter at one point saying, uh, you know, that necklace I gave you last year, well, I guess, you know, it looks like you lost it. And um, too bad for you because that's the last thing you're ever going to get out of me. And then she changed her will and um, wrote Ellen out of it. And um, my husband, who is a, a lawyer and does a lot of trust and estates work, said that the only will he's ever seen, you know, if somebody's written out of a will, typically they're just not mentioned in it um, later. But he said this is the only will he's ever seen where somebody was specifically <laughs> written out of the will. Um, she actually, Sissy included language saying, because I've given Ellen um, significant gifts during my lifetime, I choose not to make any provision for her now. Um, which, you know, and imagine doing that to a 16-year-old girl. Um, so by the end of the war, she, Sissy had really burnt her bridges and was very lonely, um, increasingly erratic, the newspaper reflected that, and, um, you know, her closest friends, people said at that point, became her unruly poodles. So I, I picture the scene in her houses, um, of which there were several very grand places. Um, you know, Sissy and her um, ferocious poodles, a lot of people described them as a pack. And I think they must have been, like, thing one, thing two, and... And several more because they, you know, they're described as biting people whenever they felt like it without reprimand. And they would steal the toilet paper from the bathrooms and sort of festoon the house with paper. And, you know, people would have to step over these like chewed upon shoes and bits of toilet paper and furniture. And um, so, you know, I think it was sort of chaos at Sissy's house and it. Not so much at the paper, because that was run by other people, but the editorial decisions, I think, reflect her state of mind. What do you see as her legacy? I think that um, one thing that makes me very sad about her is that um, I think often about a quotation that I read from um, a woman journalist who was a contemporary of Sissy's who didn't work for the Washington Times-Herald, but... Um, you know, certainly was aware of Sissy as a woman journalist in Washington in the 1940s. And she said um, that the real shame was that Sissy could have um, made such a spectacular, lasting contribution to women in journalism, but didn't. And I think that that's very sad, and I think that, um, you know, I think it would pain Sissy to hear that. Um, but in fairness to Sissy, well, I think she missed an I think the woman was right that you know Sissy missed a real opportunity. I think it's worth remembering that some of the things that we take for granted about journalism today, Sissy actually put in place almost single-handedly. Um, 
she's seldom credited with it, but basically she single-handedly brought the 24-hour news cycle to Washington, D.C. Her paper, when she merged the Times and the Herald, they became um, the first round-the-clock paper in D.C., and that model was um, copied, you know, essentially everywhere afterwards. Um, so she was also one of the first editor, the first editor, basically, to hire women in large numbers for her city room um, and to employ them not as secretaries or as you know, stenographers or whatever, but as actual reporters and um, and editors. And um, so the Times-Herald actually suffered a lot fewer manpower shortages when World War II finally did come because um, they were already pretty well-staffed with women. And um, I think that, you know, she had, she had many legacies that we take for granted now and that we don't necessarily ascribe to her but I think she was a real pioneer. And another thing about her that I find um, really admirable was, you know, I think of how many women have been bowled over by a terrible marriage and how difficult it is for people to pick up and start a new life afterwards. And I think for somebody who was abused physically and emotionally um, extensively for several years by a husband who, you know, was certainly an alcoholic and probably mentally ill, um, who kidnapped her child and humiliated her internationally and, um, you know, stole money from her. I think to pick yourself up after that and make not one successful career for yourself, but several careers for yourself is is a great lesson for anybody. And um, so, you know, I think there's... <laughs> sometimes Sissy was hard to like when I was writing about her, but I think that that you know, that ultimate kind of pick yourself up and go on pluck is a great thing to, for me, I find to remember that, you know, people can go through terrible things and keep on going and, uh, you know, make good afterwards, which I think is great. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about Newspaper Titan. I know it's a it's a no, cruel it's, it's a cruel question to ask an author whose book only just came out. But do you have any idea who <laughs> you'll be writing about next? Well, I um I have some ideas actually about Drew Pearson, and um I think maybe not immediately, but at some point I would love to write about Joe Patterson. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he he's often credited or maybe faulted for. Um, bringing the tabloid to the United States and, you know, tabloidizing American culture insofar as he's remembered at all. But I think he had a really strange sort of P.T. Barnum-like genius in, you know, newspaper editor form. And um, I think he totally changed American culture um, in a way that we don't even recognize nowadays, you know, for better or worse. But I think he was a really... Um, really important, really influential figure in American history who was actually very self-effacing, and so I think that's part of the reason that we don't remember him. Um, so those are, off the top of my head, those are my ideas. But again, like, I always find, you know, something will draw me in, and I'll find myself writing all of a sudden. Um, you know, the topic will, will find me. But in the meantime, I'm still, I still have a few, um, talks and uh, uh, interviews and stuff like that about newspaper titans. So I'm going to finish those and then take a couple weeks off and sit down and figure out what to do next. I think you've earned a bit of a break. Oh, thanks. (laughs) She was really fun to write about. I've been speaking with biographer Amanda Smith about her latest book, Newspaper Titan, The Infamous Life and Monumental Times of Sissy Patterson, which is now out in hardback. I'm Olai Deaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening. <laughs>